Viewpoint on Mormonism, the program that examines the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from a biblical perspective. Viewpoint on Mormonism is sponsored by Mormonism Research Ministry. Since 1979, Mormonism Research Ministry has been dedicated to equipping the body of Christ with answers regarding the Christian faith in a manner that expresses gentleness and respect. And now, your host for today's Viewpoint on Mormonism. Is cafeteria Mormonism alive and well within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Welcome to this edition of Viewpoint on Mormonism. I'm your host, Bill McKeever, founder and director of Mormonism Research Ministry. And with me today is Eric Johnson, my colleague at MRM. Yesterday, we began looking at an email that was sent to Eric by a young man who attends a Christian high school, same high school that Eric used to teach at years ago. And he had encountered a young Latter-day Saint at a conference that he was attending. And he was expressing the frustration that he seemed to be having in this conversation with this young lady because she didn't really want to own up to a lot of the things that he understood Mormonism to teach. And as we brought out yesterday, what it sounds like is that this young lady was practicing what some LDS leaders have called cafeteria Mormonism, or a cafeteria approach. And yesterday I read a statement from Russell M. Nelson, the 17th president of the church. This was in a conference message that he gave in April of 2011. You can find the quote in his talk titled, Face the Future with Faith, and it's in the Ensign Magazine, May 2011, on page 34. In this statement, Russell M. Nelson says to warn them, and I would assume that he's in the context, he's talking about members of the LDS Church, warn them that they will encounter people who will pick which commandments they will keep and ignore others that they choose to break. I call this the cafeteria approach to obedience. We also read another statement from James Faust, who was a member of the First Presidency, and this was also a conference message that he gave and can be found in the November 2003 edition of Ensign Magazine on page 22. It was a talk he gave titled, Lord, I Believe, Help Thou Mine Unbelief, where Faust basically said, revelations from the prophets of God are not like offerings at the cafeteria, some to be selected and others disregarded. Now, Eric, we read just the first paragraph yesterday in this email that this young man sent to you. And in this first paragraph, he says, I have asked her questions such as if she believed she was following all of God's laws to enter the celestial heaven or celestial kingdom, but she didn't really answer if she believed one had to follow all of the laws. Now, on yesterday's show, we went to Doctrine and Covenants section 88, And we read what is required in order to get into these various kingdoms. And of course, to get into the celestial kingdom, the highest level of Mormon heaven. And we might add that this is the one level where you get all the perks of Mormonism, if you will. In other words, this is where you hope to become a god. This is where you are going to be able to have the ability to organize your own world. You're going to rule over those worlds. You're going to procreate. You're going to be worshipped as god by the people on that world, just as the Latter-day Saints are worshiping Elohim or Heavenly Father right now. In other words, this is a process that started in eternity past, how they can't really explain, 
but they do believe it's going to follow that same pattern going clear down into eternity future. Bill, before we go on, I just want to state that we're going to be quoting a lot of dead leaders, people who have passed on. I hand out a book by a dead leader, 12th President Spencer W. Kimball, The Miracle of Forgiveness. One of the arguments I get about handing that out is that Kimball is no longer living. I remember I was at a uh, open house event in Mesa, Arizona, and I was talking to somebody, and that was his argument. Well, he's dead. He's not alive anymore. I said, well, this has been recommended at General Conference several different times, including 1995 and 2000 by Richard G. Scott. He says, well, Richard G. Scott is dead, too. I said, so wait a minute. So you're telling me that because these guys no longer are living, anything they said in their lifetime is no longer to be accepted by you? And he says, absolutely. What do you do when when somebody argues like that, Bill? I've heard that argument several times. One of the questions I'll ask is, well, was that individual leader alive when he said it? And of course, they're going to say yes. So basically what you're telling me is that when he said it and he was alive, his statement was factual. But now because he's dead, his statement is no longer factual. And I remember the frustration I had with a Latter-day Saint one time who kept insisting along those lines to where finally I said, and you wonder why people like myself look at your organization as being cultish. Because that's exactly how cults operate. They have this fluctuating truth. Though they claim to have truth, it fluctuates. And it's hard to pinpoint where they are at any particular point in time. I don't think Mormonism is really geared that way. I I don't think it's meant to be understood that way. There are eternal truths that LDS leaders have said never change. They call them doctrines. However, what's interesting about the LDS Church is when they decide to change a doctrine, it's all of a sudden relegated to a mere policy. It may have been called a doctrine in times past, but now because they want to change it, it's no longer a doctrine. A case in point would be the revelation regarding those of African heritage, that they were now going to allow those of African heritage to hold this important priesthood. It was talked about as a doctrine by LDS leaders, even in a first presidency statement. But when the church came about and changed that, then it was relegated to a policy. And even some Latter-day Saints said it wasn't really even a good policy. We don't even know where it came from now. Even though leaders prior were saying it came from God, now they're saying it didn't come from God. If the LDS people are confused about that, Why shouldn't we be confused about this? It's hard for us to wrap our head around this kind of thinking, but the fact that Latter-day Saints don't have a problem with this, I think should concern all of us as New Testament Christians if we have any concern for the spiritual welfare of these people, which of course we do, and this is why we do want to bring up these topics when we're talking with them, because we're hoping that they will think through this. I appreciate what you've said there, and there's different ways that we can deal with it. One of the things that I use when I'm talking to somebody who's disagreeing with me handing out the miracle of forgiveness and saying that uh, it's not what the church believes anymore, I say, okay, let me understand this. What Spencer W. Kimball was saying, are you saying, is false doctrine. 
then that makes him a false prophet. What do you think they do with that? Immediately they go, no, 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 he, he, was, a, he was a true prophet. But that book no longer shows true doctrine. I said, well, you're going to have to show me from your church to say that what he was saying is not true, because he does a pretty good job of explaining the unique standard works to support the case that he was making. His case was, just do it. He was Nike before there was Nike, I'd like to say, on the streets. And if you can't show me anything that disregards what he says, using the scriptures that he uses, I'm going to have to believe that he's actually teaching what is still believed today by your leaders as true doctrine. And one of the arguments that we hear when it comes to Spencer Kimball's book is it went out of print. And it seems to have been replaced by another book by a Mormon apostle by the name of Neil Anderson. And people ask you, well, have you read Neil Anderson's book? And what do you tell them? My basic response is, of course I have. In fact, if you go to our website, mrm.org, you can type in Neil Anderson's name and you'll find a review to the book. I believe that Neil Anderson says what Spencer W. Kimball says. He even uses the same scriptures. He just says it in a nicer way. Kimball was kind of blunt. and I appreciate bluntness, actually. We love Joseph Fielding Smith and Bruce McConkie in this corner because they told it as it was. Neil Anderson dances around, but he doesn't say anything different than what Spencer W. Kimball was saying. I think you're right. The bottom line is Neil Anderson, when it comes to the requirements for celestial exaltation, he doesn't fudge. He doesn't change anything. Basically, what he does, as you've said, is he's nicer in saying it. But I think what he says still has that full impact of meeting a requirement that you're probably not going to meet. I'm sure Neil Anderson probably thinks he's meeting it, just as I think Spencer W. Kimball thought he was meeting the requirements that he had put down in his book. I mean, page 25 is a killer of the list of all the things that a Latter-day Saint must do. And yet when you ask Latter-day Saints, well, what about this one? Are you doing that? Well, I'm working on it. They're not doing it. And yet, what's the first chapter in his book? This Life is a Time, and he cites from Alma 34, 32. And let me just say, I disagree with Spencer Kimball. Don't get me wrong. I've had Christians come up to me and say, why are you handing out one of their books? Because I think he gets it right when it comes to what the unique standard work says. And I think that Latter-day Saints need to read a book that's no longer in print to see what it is that they're required to do. Spencer Kimball seemed to think that perfection is an achievable goal. He talks badly on page 206 about Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, that grace cannot be the only thing that's needed. Works must be necessary as well. For me, using that book has been very positive and very challenging for Latter-day Saints because I'm not handing out anti-literature. I'm handing out their own information. And what we're going to be quoting here in the next couple of days regarding obedience, but these are things that leaders taught and I believe continue to teach. And, And of course, they do continue to teach that. Well, since you brought up the idea of faith and works, and since the topic here in the first paragraph from this email has to do with keeping all of God's laws to enter the celestial kingdom. Let's look at a statement from David O. McKay. This is from his book, Gospel Ideals. Now, David O. McKay was a president in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He, he was a, I would probably say he was a very well-liked president, too, and he held that position for a very long time. But this is what he says under the subheading, Faith, Grace, and Works. And this is found on Gospel Ideals, page 8. The fallacy that Jesus has done all for us and live as we may, if on our deathbed we only believe we shall be saved in his glorious presence, is most pernicious. 
Now, let me stop you there, because even though he starts off trying to debunk this idea that a person can be truly saved on their deathbed, he's going to broaden it as he goes on in this citation. Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, has given us the means whereby man may obtain eternal happiness and peace in the kingdom of our Father, but man must work out his own salvation through obedience to the eternal principles and ordinances of the gospel. For centuries, men have been blinded by the false teaching of belief alone sufficient, and today there is manifest on every hand the sorry plight into which this and other perverse doctrines have thrown the pseudo-Christian sects. The world is in sore need at the present time of the gospel of individual effort, the gospel of faith and works. He who will not grasp this means provided him will sink beneath the waves of sin and falsehood. I appreciate guys like David O. McKay. I mean, we were talking about bluntness, and McKay is pretty blunt here. For centuries, men have been blinded by the false teaching of belief alone sufficient, and today there is manifest on every hand the sorry plight into which this and other perverse doctrines have thrown the pseudo-Christian sex. I mean, the way he describes really a lot of what we believe, uh, certainly in a negative way, but at least I can appreciate that that's where his position lies. Okay, now you've given me a target, and now I can aim, and I can respond to the target. Sometimes that can be very difficult, and I think we're going to find out as we continue looking at this young man's response and explaining the conversation he had, you can see why you would much rather talk to someone like a David O. McKay who's going to be blunt in telling you what they really believe. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information regarding Mormonism Research Ministry, we encourage you to visit our website at www.mrm.org, where you can request our free newsletter, Mormonism Researched. We hope you will join us again as we look at another viewpoint on Mormonism.